Well, good evening, everyone. Uh, my name's Robin Archer, and I'm the director of the Ralph Miliband Program here at the London School of Economics. And I'd like to welcome you to the last of this year's series of Miliband lectures. And thank you all for coming out on such a wet night with so much going on. Um, I'm very, very pleased to be able to welcome our speaker, James Meek. Um, our theme this year, as you know, has been revolution. And uh, James's work, both as a journalist and a writer, leaves him, I think, very well placed to offer some thoughts about this theme. As a journalist, um, he's reported extensively, not just about Britain, but also about the former Soviet Union, um, especially during his time in Ukraine and even more so in Russia itself, where he was for a period the Guardian's Moscow bureau chief. And he's also reported extensively from the Middle East, from Kuwait, from Iraq, from Afghanistan and elsewhere. And this journalistic work has been honoured by a number of awards. Notably, he was Foreign Reporter of the Year um, on one occasion, and he was the Amnesty International Journalist of the Year uh, on another. But he's got two hats, and as an author, um, he's written, I think you've written seven works of fiction? I think that's, that's right. Um, and, I mean, I won't, you'll be pleased to know, go through them all, but I, I do particularly want to note a, a book that I myself enjoyed very much, The People's Act of Love, um, which is set during the Civil War in the aftermath of the Russian Revolution. And that book won the Royal Society of Literatures on Dachi, Prize and also the Scottish Arts Council's Book of the Year Award. Um, finally, uh, James is a first-rate essayist. He's a contributing editor for the London Review of Books and many of his articles are published there. Some of these articles on the topic of privatisation in Britain were recently brought together and published as a volume, Private Island, and that won the prestigious Orwell Prize for political writing uh, in 2015. Well, today um, he's going to talk, I think, taking the centenary of the Russian Revolution as his starting point, he's going to talk about social revolution, political revolution, what it does and what it doesn't do to reshape our world. And he's going to be talking, just to let you know, for about 50 minutes and then we should have a good chunk of time for questions and discussion. So before you start speaking, let me ask you to join me in welcoming our speaker, James Meek. the languages of most of the countries I'm talking about. Um, and uh, I, I have made some effort to, uh, to get the pronunciation of these names right. Um, but um, in particular, my, my Chinese pronunciation is, uh, is weak. So I hope you'll, uh, you'll forgive me if I, uh, if I get that wrong. Or even correct me, perhaps, afterwards, by all means. <clears throat> the great revolutions present a moral paradox. The evils they confront are so entrenched that revolution is necessary to sweep them away. But the evils they cause are so grievous it would be better for there to be no revolution. 
Neither proposition overcomes the other. Can this absolute contradiction be resolved? The first stages of revolutions, political revolutions, where a tyrant or an autocrat is overthrown, crowds gather, censorship lifts, and the prisons are opened, are exhilarating, dizzying, terrifying, as familiar social landmarks are erased, uncertainty about the next day prevails, and physical architecture that signified one thing comes to signify another. History's time-traveling news drone swoops at high speed from one great city to another, from fervent crowd to fervent crowd. We go over live to Paris in 1789, where a government prison, the Bastille, is being stormed. We bring you a breaking story from 1912, where China's last emperor, the six-year-old Pui, has just abdicated. Unconformed reports from 1917 say Tsar Nicholas of Russia has stepped down. Our eyewitness is on the scene. What can you tell us, John? Coming up after the break, the flight into exile of Iran's last Shah, Mohammad Reza Pahlavi, in 1979, under pressure of mass protests, the sweeping aside and execution of Nikolai Ceausescu in Romania in 1989, the arrest and trial of Hosni Mubarak, Egypt's president, after mass demonstrations in 2011, the flight into exile of Viktor Yanukovych, president of Ukraine, after weeks of street fighting between anti-government demonstrators and police in the center of Kiev in 2014. Then come the less clip-friendly disappointments of stage two. The revolutionaries bicker among themselves. Radicals fight moderates. Socialists and nationalists fight free marketeers. The religious fight the secular. Outside powers take advantage of the upheaval to grab territory or impose their preferred rulers. Agents of the old system reorganize and take back power or a ruthless leader emerges to take absolute control on his own terms, offering to exchange the bickering, the invasions, the counter-revolution, the gut-wrenching, brain-taxing confusion and uncertainty with a single, wonderfully simple resolution, himself. Usually, some combination of these occurs with much bloodshed, much repression, and much corruption along the way. It's tempting to generalize the notable revolutions as a series of questions and answers. What is the answer to the cruel, incompetent, repressive rule of the Bourbons, the Qing dynasty, the Romanovs? A revolution. What is the answer to the revolution? Another revolution. What is the answer to the second revolution? Napoleon, Mao, Stalin. This simplification has the negative virtue of revealing a gulf in time between those earlier revolutions and the later ones. The answer to the Iranian revolution was the rule of the Ayatollahs. The answer to the Romanian revolution was membership of the European Union and NATO. The answer to the Egyptian and Ukrainian revolutions is what? We, or more to the point, the Egyptians and Ukrainians, are still waiting to hear. If there's to be a resolution of the revolutionary paradox, the concept of a revolution as fatal necessity, we have to account for this difference between the early modern revolutions and their late modern counterparts. And we can't do that without considering what it is that makes revolution a success or a failure.
Writing just before the start of events in Iran that led to the fall of the Shah, Theodor Skokpol described the French, Russian, and Chinese revolutions as social revolutions, as distinct from rebellions, political revolutions, or technological economic upheavals. A successful rebellion like the overthrow of Edward II of England in the 14th century or the so-called Tulip Revolution in Kyrgyzstan in 2005 overthrows rulers, but not much else changes. A political revolution, like the American Revolution of 1776, which introduced constitutional democracy but kept slavery intact, changes the system of government without fundamentally changing society. Techno-economic disruptions like the Industrial Revolution change society without changing systems of government. A social revolution is one that uniquely combines political and social transformation. Skokpol's analysis of social revolutions draws on Karl Marx's ideas of class conflict and Charles Tilley's notion that revolutions, rather than condensing like dew out of the anger suspended in the air, flow from existing political stresses in society, channeled by an established group that seeks to wrest power from its holder. Her refinement of Marx and Tilly's approach, with a tip of a hat to Ralph Miliband and Perry Anderson, is to argue that the state isn't simply a repressive apparatus serving the will and interests of the dominant class, but an agent in its own right, and that it's conflict between the state and the dominant class that weakens the power of both, leaving them vulnerable to overthrow by the subjugated majority. Acute as her argument is, there is something loose about Scott concept of the state. On the one hand, she has a, a narrow view of the functions of the state that fails to take into account not only what states have become, but what earlier revolutionaries hoped they would become. The state, she writes, normally performs two basic sets of tasks. It maintains order, and it competes with other actual or potential states. This was more or less true until the 19th century if you ignore running the money supply and consider the court system to be part of maintaining order. It was certainly not true in 1979, even in the unstatist United States. A yearning for the state to intervene in society in pretty much all arenas except maintaining order has been explicit in every social revolution. When Skokpol characterizes the success of one or another social revolution, she falls back on a different concept of the state, one that is narrow in a different way, in which an entire population and its rulers are subsumed in a single metonymic entity. Success is framed in terms of external competition. Napoleonic France's military prowess, for example, is placed on a par with the inspirational force of liberté, égalité, fraternité. She writes, The Russian Revolution astounded the capitalist West and whetted the ambitions of the emerging nations by demonstrating that revolutionary state power could, within the space of two generations, transform a backward agrarian country into the second-ranked industrial and military power in the world. What the Russian Revolution was for the first half of the 20th century, the Chinese has been for the second half. Where does this place the revolutions that have occurred since 1979? 
Also, the Iranian revolution clearly qualifies as a social revolution. Skokpol was candid enough to declare later that it didn't correspond to the patterns she found in France, Russia, and China. It wasn't the result of a conflict between the state and the dominant class triggered by pressure from foreign powers. Romania is also problematic. In a way, it's the most successful of all the revolutions I've mentioned. For all Romania's problems, its people are more free and better off than they were under Ceausescu, and the country is whole and at peace. But far from being anything like a freewheeling great power, an essential part of Romania's post-revolutionary prosperity has been a sacrifice of the state's freedom of action to two international institutions, the EU and NATO, and to the global capitalist system. The events in Egypt in 2011 and Ukraine in 2014 don't, in the Skokpol scheme, seem to qualify as social revolutions at all. Egypt's was a successful rebellion only in that it nipped a single family's power out of the state. Otherwise, the new regime seems not much different to the old, and the people no better off. Ukraine's rebellion was a little more successful, but only in the sense that the corruption of the political class is fractionally less blatant, and at the expense of some loss of territory and thousands of lives, the country has exchanged a high level of dependency on Russia with a dependency on the EU that is both less and more than Ukraine's leaders would like. There's another way of looking at revolutions, to see them as two linked but separate narratives. One is the dramatic struggle for control of the state as a country's central directing authority, played out within a relatively brief period of time and tightly confined within a single country, even if within those confines foreign powers intervene. The first task of the revolution that has successfully murdered the state is to bring it back to life as soon as possible. This is the most visible, most described, and most analyzed aspect of revolution. Journalistically, it can be made to seem to conform to the win-lose dichotomy of war or sport. Celebrities, horrors, wonders, ironies, absurdities, myths explode dazzlingly from it like successive blooms of sparks in a firework display. The other narrative is not so easily confined within the tight local limits of time or national borders. This is the narrative of the hope that infuses the revolution. If the first narrative of revolution is the story of which group controls the state, the second is the story of what the people who made the revolution want the state to be after they win, which is some combination of freedom from the state, less brutality from the authorities, less government corruption, less inequality, and freedoms provided by the state. More housing, better hospitals, better schools, better roads, running water for everyone all the time. This hope doesn't appear from nowhere at the beginning of the conflict period of each revolutionary episode. It flows across borders and from the past of the country where the revolution takes place. The revolutionary events of 2011 in Egypt and 2014 in Ukraine were unique, dramatic, and remarkable. But in the other parallel narrative, a more optimistic one, perhaps given how far they fell short, they are simply moments 
when an idea that long traveled through the world comes to the surface. The Egyptian revolution in 2011 was impelled by a desire to bring down a corrupt regime and change a rotten system that only worked for the wealthy, for the generals, and for foreign investors. It was a long way in time and circumstances from the previous Egyptian revolution, the events beginning in 1952 that changed the country from a monarchy to a republic, purged the nation of post-colonial British influence, and brought Gamal Abdel Nasser to power. There was an obvious link between the two events. The precedent Nasser set of an authoritarian, centralized military regime, buttressed by nationalism, focusing its repressive power against militant Islam, has now, since the army's counter-revolution of 2013, been returned to. But is that the only, or even the most, significant relationship between the two revolutions? Under Nasser, the power of landlords over tenants was weakened, the rights of women were strengthened, and the compulsive organizing power of the state was turned not just to building new networks to repress the people, but new networks to serve them, most notably an education network. No matter how badly the weakening of exploitative landlords, loosening the bonds of patriarchy, and the expansion of public services were carried out under Nasser, it was carried out. The Suez Canal was nationalized. Women did get the vote. In the 1960s, a new school was being opened every day. Fourteen years after the 1952 revolution, the number of children enrolled in primary school had doubled. With the failure of the 2011 revolution, any kind of similar effort to rein in rampant overprivatization, to combat sexual violence, to revitalize Egypt's overcrowded, overcentralized, and underfunded education system is blocked. But the fact that the hopeful idea driving the two revolutions was partly realized in one and not realized at all in the other doesn't change the continuity of the idea or alter the conclusion that from the street side, the two revolutions were two chapters in a longer struggle. Looking at revolutions in this way, you see a shift in the nature of this hopeful idea that begins to explain some of the differences between the early modern revolutions and their more recent counterparts. Up until the mid-19th century, and in many parts of the world long after that, there was a clear link between the dramatic early actions of a revolution and the hopes of the oppressed. With hunger and brutal working conditions, the norm for the majority who saw the surplus of their labor, supporting both a lavish, lavish lifestyle for the rich and the repressive military taxation, taxation network that was the sole embodiment of the state. There was perfect rationality to the notion that smashing the state would lead to an improvement in life, whatever happened afterwards. This has never completely gone away. Without a primal popular urge to have the ruling elite dragged out of their palaces, no, no revolution will happen. But the periodic eruption of revolution has come loose from the long-term narrative of hope. This narrative encompasses states like Egypt that are simultaneously oppressive and corrupt on the one hand and repositories of the successes of past revolutions and reforms on the other. The modern revolution must not only fight to destroy the oppressive state, 
but defend and somehow improve whatever fabric of a social state has arisen over the generations within that oppressive state. Once the best hope of the revolution was the revolution itself, the act of liberation, liberty, equality, fraternity. According to the Communist Manifesto of 1848, the oppressed majority of the industrialized nations, the proletarians in Marx and Engels' terms, have nothing of their own to secure and to fortify. Their mission is to destroy all previous securities for and insurances of individual property. The proletariat, the lowest stratum of our present society, cannot stir, cannot raise itself up without the whole superincumbent strata of official society being sprung into the air. Each page of the manifesto hammers home the point that only proletarian revolution and the destruction of the existing state can put the world to rights. Marx and Engels go to some lengths to diss the bourgeois equivocators and philanthropists who want to help the workers without surrendering their own privileges to the inevitable tide of revolutionary justice. Yet, at one point, there's an anxious look over the shoulder at the possibility of change by another route. The manifesto mentions how the previous year, after a long campaign by mill workers and radical politicians, Britain's parliament passed a law limiting the number of hours women and children could work in the factories. It looks feeble now, highlighting exploitation rather than its mitigation. A law that stopped English factory owners working 13-year-olds for more than 10 hours a day. But this early restriction of raw industrial capitalism, this state-enforced restraint on the profit-making few for the benefit of society as a whole, was seen by Marx and Engels for what it was, a sign of the emergence of a new current of hope that was beginning to flow between revolutions as well as during them, of a state that, under pressure from its people, might simultaneously protect the capitalists and constrain them to the workers' benefit. Right there in the original Communist Manifesto was Marx's admission that the revolutionaries had a competitor, a competitor on the inside, riding the support of the oppressed to change the state from within. This was not the conflict between the dominant class and the state over the state's mismanagement of military finances that Theodor Skokpol describes. This was another idea, even if the idea didn't know itself yet. The French and American revolutions had enunciated equality and liberty, but the agency of these concepts was limited. They could have signified libertarian anarchy. The new idea was a freedom bound to bear a shield beneath which all who needed to could shelter. This idea, this hope, might be called socialism or social democracy or social justice or progressive liberalism. I'd prefer to call it universality. The notion of society as a whole freely consenting to a set of shielding and strengthening goods being made available to all citizens all the time, whether they're able to fund them personally or not. The result, after generations of building, is a set of universal networks. Healthcare, education, welfare, housing, transport, water, sewage, energy, communications. Collectively, the framework of modern civilization. 
the state might not actually provide the whole network all the time. All the networks I've just listed began as limited private or charitable initiatives. But at a minimum, it intervenes with subsidies and regulation to make each network universal. When Marx and Engels wrote the Communist Manifesto, there were only a few universal networks in the industrializing world. They didn't differ much from the ones that were around at the time classical economists like Adam Smith were writing a century earlier. There was a transport network of roads, canals, ports, and the newly spreading railways, a communications network of mail and the novelty of the telegraph, a fiscal network of coinage and revenue collection, a judicial network to settle disputes, and a security military network to defend the state from external and internal enemies. Of these, the state was most concerned with the last, the security network. Ostensibly, the security network has always been a universal network since the time countries have existed. Funded by national taxes, it serves to protect everyone from violence without favor. In fact, as Marx and Engels and millions of the poor understood, it was an exclusive network masquerading as a universal network. It existed to protect the dominant class and the apparatus of the state from just attempts by the majority population of the state to better their lot. Exclusive security networks masquerading as universal, universal security networks haven't gone away, which is why we will always need rebellions and revolutions. The yeoman cavalry with their heavy sabers who cut down men and women at a pro-reform demonstration in Manchester in 1819 were kin to the soldiers who shot down peaceful demonstrators during Bloody Sunday in St. Petersburg in 1905, the Egyptian police who routinely tortured ordinary people to death and acted as enforcers for Mubarak's oligarchy, and the Ukrainian riot police whose beating of peacefully protesting students triggered the Maidan demonstrations of 2014. England in the early 19th and St. Petersburg in the early 20th centuries had just begun to embrace the idea of universality beyond the ancient networks. Whereas Egypt and Ukraine in the 21st century had lived with the idea for decades, the state that defended itself and its oligarchs with an exclusive security network was also the state that, however corruptly and badly, provided schools for everyone and health care for everyone and had at least the intention that everyone should have access to water and energy. With the perspective of almost 170 years, the contrast between the extraordinary prescience of the Communist Manifesto in some areas and its lack of foresight in others is remarkable. Its description of the effects of globalized consumer capitalism seemed better suited for today than for 1848. But its 10-point plan for the post-revolutionary era, though radical in some areas, is strikingly modest in terms of benefits to the people. The only new universal network Marx and Engels propose is universal children's education. There's no mention of higher education or housing or health or pensions or care for the disabled. The main economic innovation in an ominous foreshadowing of the Cultural Revolution and Pol Pot is the formation of armies of laborers to work in the fields. I don't want to idealize Britain in the 1970s. It had many problems and injustices. But without ever abolishing capitalism or free organizational initiatives, it had, 
by pooling a large proportion of private income, managed to create a set of universal networks that the mid-19th century communists failed to imagine. Not only was there a national health service, there was, in fact, if not in name, a national education service, a national welfare service, a national transport service, a national energy service, and most remarkably, a national housing service. The latter was barely up and running before Margaret Thatcher began to dismantle it. You could argue that it's anomalous to mention the Peterloo massacre in Manchester in the context of revolution and exclusive security networks since there was no revolution in England afterwards. But that would be to adopt that restrictive view of a revolution as no more than a singularity in time and space. It is that singularity, but it's also tied to other earlier revolutions and to that hopeful idea, the hopeful ideas that underpin all revolutions which continue to travel in the periods between revolutions, which may be centuries. It was England, after all, that cut off the head of its king in public in 1649, a fairly decisive refutation of his assertion on the scaffold that the people could have no share in government. The English political revolution of the 17th century enabled the British social transformation of the 19th and 20th centuries, the Industrial Revolution and the triumph of universality. Looked at in this way, the dilemmas and confusion for the Ukrainians after they, their Maidan revolution of 2014 come into focus. 2014 was a more violent version of the inconclusive, Ukrainian, of the inconclusive orange revolution of, 20, of 2004. It was carried out by an ad hoc overlapping alliance of Ukrainian nationalists and members of the Ukrainian middle class, students, professionals, small business owners, who had had the opportunity to compare life in the European Union with life in Russia and their own country, and preferred the EU model. The most decisive change the revolution brought, the end of Ukraine's position as a Russian client state, came about more through the folly of Vladimir Putin's annexation of Crimea and support for separatism in eastern Ukraine than through the direct work of the revolutionaries. In terms of a genuine social revolution, there hasn't really been one. The corruption and grip on the economy of feuding oligarchic factions persists. In some ways, with a nightly trickle of casualties on the front line with the separatists, it is stronger than ever, since the president, Petro Poroshenko, and his allies now have the national defense card to play. There is much talk of reform, but the reforms that save the state money, such as raising the price of energy, have proceeded more swiftly than reforms that might oblige Ukrainian billionaires to cash in their yachts, such as raising taxes to pay teachers more than the minimum wage. The antecedents of Maidan 2014 go back much further than the Orange Revolution. They go back, in the first place, to that moment in 1991 when the Ukrainians voted in a referendum for independence from the Soviet Union, precipitating its collapse. In general, the USSR died of indifference, like some famous old man who has so alienated everyone that when he collapses in the street, nobody comes to help. The effect on Poland of that moment was a more extreme and chaotic version of Poland's shock therapy. In other words, Ukraine had its radical social transformation in the 1990s. Its revolutions in 2004 
and 2014 were efforts to retrospectively impregnate that social upheaval with the democratic political upheaval it should have had beforehand. The stalwart revolutionaries were those who had the fewest regrets about parting company with Russia, the nationalists. Those who had the fewest regrets about the collapse of Soviet communism, the pro-Europeans who'd benefited from post-Soviet freedoms to travel and make money in small-scale private enterprise, die-hard liberal idealists, and the hopeful young. One of the problems for the Ukrainian revolutionaries trying to use this motley coalition against the corrupt oligarchic rent collectors of the old post-Soviet system is that so much of the country is dependent on the legacy universal networks it inherited from the Soviet Union. Post-revolutionary Ukraine is not an authoritarian state like Egypt or Putin's Russia, but as in Egypt, the Ukrainian revolutionaries face a parasitic oligarchic state that both plunders and, however grudgingly, adheres to the hopeful idea of universality. The final antecedent of the 2014 and 2004 revolutions in Ukraine didn't happen in Ukraine at all. It happened in Russia, or rather when Ukraine was part of Russia in the early 20th century. Today, a Ukrainian nationalist will say, we are finally delivered of the Russian yoke. Look at the potholed roads the Soviets left us with, the pro-European Ukrainians will say, the mean apartments, the towns where the water goes off every day. Compare that to France, Germany, Britain. Fair enough. But it's also true that the hopeful idea of universality, which, after much campaigning, many strikes and some revolts, was realized in healthcare, education, running water and pensions being made available to everyone in Western Europe, happened to enter Ukraine as a result of the Russian Revolution. Or rather, not one revolution, but several. It's a measure of the distinction between the hopeful idea and any particular revolution, that the ideal of universal education in Russia wasn't switched on in 1917. It had been gathering strength long before. The first great period of universal educational idealism in Russia began after the revolution of 1905, when the All-Russian Union of Teachers, at its founding Congress, Congress, demanded universal, free, and compulsory primary education, and ended in 1928, when the children of slightly better-off parents began to be thrown out of school. A period when, as Larry Holmes puts it, everyone associated with schools was told to join campaigns to provide Soviet Russia with a uniform secular culture and transform it into a mighty colossus of machines, black smoke, and waves of grain. For several months in 1969, the press room in the Vatican was adorned with a painting of a handsome young Chinese missionary cresting a mountain ridge in wild country on his way to preach the word to the godless. The picture hung a few yards away from a portrait of the reigning Pope, Paul VI. Clad in a simple grey cassock and carrying an umbrella, Framed by the rough, wooded peaks of the hills he has already passed, the missionary stands looking out on the hard road ahead, his face illuminated by, we guess, the rising sun, the wind tugging at the folds of his humble garment. The painter seems to have tried to imbue his work with the delicacy of a Renaissance master, but something isn't right. The traveller's free hand is clenched in a fist. 
rather than Christian humility. His expression conveys a proud determination to fight. The vast cloudscape over the mountains aren't gentle puffs for cherubs or theatrical bangs announcing the arrival of the agents of heaven, but racing diagonals that reek of progress, as if the angel of history had just whooshed by. The papal curators took the picture down when they realized it did not portray a missionary. It was an idealized portrait of the young communist Mao Zedong on his way to do revolution. It was, in fact, a copy of Liu Chunhua's famous 1967 painting, Chairman Mao Goes to Anyun, an image familiar in poster form to millions of Chinese. It was on the 8 yen postage stamp at the height of the Cultural Revolution. Anyun is a mining town in southeastern China, close to Mao's home province of Hunan, which in the 1920s became a seedbed for Chinese communist future, China's communist future. Mao was one of a group of communists who organized and radicalized the exploited railway workers and coal miners of Anyun to the point where, in 1922, they were able to use a peaceful strike against their employers to win big concessions. Three years later, when the communist hold on Anyun was broken by a warlord army, the activists were scattered to their home villages many of them in Hunan province. These activists became the core of the peasant associations, which in the mid-1920s mounted a violent rebellion against their landlords and the gentry in general. Early in 1927, Mao, who hadn't previously shown much interest in the revolutionary potential of China's peasant majority, some 80% of the population, went to Hunan. He spent just over a month exploring the rebellion, touring the province's small market towns, each of them the center of the cultural and economic universe for a dozen or so villages. He reported back to his comrades in delight at the vengeful destructiveness of the peasants against their oppressors, how they led landlords in humiliating parades through the streets, ransacked and pillaged their property, beat and in some cases killed them. In his notorious account of the Hunan events, he declared that such extreme action was not an unfortunate side effect of revolution, but a necessary and welcome sign that the revolution was genuine. He wrote, A revolution is not a dinner party, or writing an essay, or painting a picture, or doing embroidery. It cannot be so refined, so leisurely and gentle, so temperate, kind, courteous, restrained and magnanimous. A revolution is an insurrection, an act of violence by which one class overthrows another. Revolutionary violence should not, writes Mao, be seen as reasonable or even fair in the moment it is carried out. Shocking at that point in time, it is rendered just in the context of the thousands of years of oppression that preceded it and implicitly the better era that follows. Here he is again. To put it bluntly, it is necessary to create terror for a while in every rural area, or otherwise it would be impossible to suppress the activities of the counter-revolutionaries in the countryside or overthrow the authority of the gentry. Proper limits have to be exceeded in order to right a wrong, or else the wrong cannot be righted. <coughs> in their 650-page condemnation of the Chinese leader, Mao, the unknown story, Zhong Chang and John Halliday 
identify Mao's 32 days among the peasants of Hunan in 1927 as the moment the fledgling dictator revealed the scale of his indifference to the suffering of others, an indifference tempered only by a streak of sadism. You don't have to agree with every detail of Chang and Halliday's research to see a connection between the Mao who reveled, reveled in the purgative effects of violent social leveling in Hunan and the Mao who 30 years later led his country to the catastrophes of the Great Leap Forward, the consequent famine, and the Cultural Revolution. Though published more recently in 2005, and very different in time, style, timescale, and its focus on a single leader at the top, Chang and Halliday's book has a kind of family resemblance to two other immense best-selling works of scholarship about what are sometimes called the classical revolutions, Simon Sharma's 1989 Citizens about the French Revolution and Orlando Fige's A People's Tragedy from 1996, A History of the Russian Revolution. Finishing these books, the leader is left dazed and transported by the lurid details of extreme behavior in revolutionary times when views, values, motives, status and power shift as rapidly as the weather. You're left with a sense of never-to-be-righted injustice, of wasted heroism, you feel a weight of nameless corpses, of blood gratuitously spilled. And yet you're left, too, with a feeling that life for the majority before each revolution was so bleak and unjust that root and branch change was necessary, not simply a change of regime, but a change of being, a change of social norms. In 2008, Elizabeth Perry, a China scholar at Harvard, built on the work of her Chinese colleague, Diu Zhenrong, to write a presidential address to the Association of Asian Studies about the events at Anyin in the 1920s. She begins by confronting an anthropological issue among her academic peers, how America-Asia scholars who, in the 1960s and 70s, the era of the Vietnam War, were sympathetic to the Chinese Revolution, had more recently taken to recanting and publishing analyses of the horrors of Mao's years in power. She stresses that she doesn't want to downplay the brutality of China's 20th century upheavals. Paraphrasing Benjamin Schwartz, she writes, China may not have needed the revolution it actually got, yet China probably did need some sort of mass awakening and uprising to break the grinding poverty and inequality that gripped its pre-revolutionary society. She suggests, as she puts it, that there is something worth retrieving from our youthful idealism about the Chinese Revolution. She finds an example in the way Mao and two other future communist leaders who were active in Anyin, Li Lisan and Liu Shatsi, the future Chinese head of state and Mao's rival, brought education and human dignity to the Anyin workers and their children. Tellingly, the intended translation and publication in China of Perry's attempt to find good in the Chinese Revolution was blocked by the censors of the new communist capitalist China. In the remarkable book about Anyin she wrote later, Perry describes how the miners, most infested with hookworm and many suffering from black lung disease, worked 12-hour shifts in poorly ventilated, stiflingly hot mine shafts without safety equipment and naked except for turbans. Their only protection against regular fatal gas explosions, the rats scurrying around their feet, who were thought to detect the gas, like canaries. By 1924, the education project, 
led by Lee, had enabled three-quarters of the Anyan workforce to master the basics of reading and writing. By 1925, the Anyan Workers' Club ran a library, 13 reading rooms, and seven schools, teaching 1,500 workers and 2,000 children. What emerges from Perry's account, even if she doesn't put it explicitly like this, is a double process. The revolutionary communists, acting at this stage of Chinese history in close coordination with their sponsors in Moscow, need to create a vanguard for their revolution from China's industrial proletariat. And to do this, their vanguard must be literate, eloquent, and politically conscious. Hence, the education effort. The miners are attracted to the idea of fighting their bosses for a better life. But for them, education isn't just a means to a revolutionary end. It's the immediate embodiment of the hopeful idea of universality, and a prize in itself. The hopeful idea uses the revolution to travel on without being inherently spoiled by its carrier. Dependent on the revolution in that time and that place, but not always requiring a revolution to spread. When Mao wrote his infamous report on the Hunan peasant uprisings, the communists were in an temporary alliance with nationalists of the Kuomintang, which emerged from the 1911 revolution that overthrew the monarchy and established a republic. The dominant ideology Mao puts in the mouths of the peasant rebels isn't from a communist text. It's the three principles of the Kuomintang ideologue, Sun Yat-sen, nationalism, democracy, and the concept of minxiongjui, variously translated as socialism and the livelihood of the people. The eclectic foreign sources of this concept, which Sun never managed to flesh out clearly before he died, show the diverse pathways along which the idea of universality traveled, from progressive thinkers in the United States to the Fabian socialists Beatrice and Sidney Webb. How did that play out? There, in South Chinese countryside, in the winter of 27, amid the burning and shouting and taunting, the score-settling and pleading, the young Mao's heart and mind are with Lenin. But in his ears, mouthed by Hunanese peasants, he hears slogans partly transmitted, however faintly, from the co-founders of the London School of Economics. At the Anyan mine, the communists needed education to bring about a revolution. And the miners needed communists to bring about education. But there was another dynamic at work. The revolutionaries couldn't simply scoop a hopeful idea out of the intellectual currents flowing through the world and ram it down the miners' throats, no matter how eager for change and ready for a fight the miners were. It's clear from Perry's work that Li, Liu, and Mao brought the miners on side by embracing positions in a set of class roles rather different to that of the Marxist opposition of oppressor and oppressed. Like their Russian predecessors, the, Russian, the Chinese revolutionaries renounced religion and superstition, but got their way by what was essentially preaching, by their skill at putting abstract, sometimes metaphysical ideas into language that ordinary working people could understand, by using scholarly learning, rhetoric, and analytical skills to make the connections between real political power, grand social change, and the actions of individuals, by their willingness to exploit the cultural capital of their converts to bind them. Revolutionaries, like academics, political ideologues, artists, even journalists, inherit the third place 
in the ancient three-way scheme of leader, worker, priest, before they inherit the first. Approaching their task, Li, Liu, and Mao had to honor, but at the same time rein in, the powerful macho culture of martial prowess among the miners. They used the traditional Chinese association between success and literary skill to enhance their own prestige and to strengthen the lure of the education they offered. Li turned glyphomancy, the art of fortune-telling with Chinese characters, into a form of propaganda. One May Day, he had local martial arts champions carry a bust of Karl Marx in a palanquin of the kind used to bear images of gods. He placated the powerful Red Gang secret society many miners belonged to, a kind of mixture of Masonic Lodge and Mafia family, by taking a live rooster along to a meeting of gang leaders and, in accordance with secret society customs, drinking the rooster's blood. The error the Vatican made when they mistook Mao for a missionary wasn't really an error at all. He simply worked in a rival branch of the priestly vocation. Is it possible that the difficulties for modern revolutions stem not only from the multitude of modern states that are both oppressors and agents of universality, but from a reluctance on the part of revolutionary visionaries to accept the status consequence of the brave decision they have made, that they are bound either to adopt the priestly quality of plunging into the battle of ideologies with a hopeful idea they must persuade others to believe in, or the leaderly quality of putting that idea into practice, or both. In his book, Whatever Happened to the Egyptian Revolution, the Egyptian economist Galal Amin, who supported the uprising, complains that the demonstrators who brought down Mubarak stepped back at the moment of their triumph and allowed the crooked old players to return to their old ways. In any successful revolution, he writes, those who carry out the revolution are usually the ones who take power as soon as it succeeds. He acknowledges the strength of the Islamist movement in his country and its role in the revolution. He acknowledges that the secularists, too, have their metaphysics. He writes, we have something very valuable, metaphysics, that generates fervor and enthusiasm, brings people together, and diffuses a strong sense of loyalty and belonging which are very valuable things for any political activity that aims at national revival, but always vulnerable to contamination by extremist emotions that work against the original purpose. A strong applied belief in abstract ideas, in other words, can be dangerous. But without that idealism in revolutionaries and the determination to make people who aren't like them share those ideals, a revolution is surely bound to falter. In Amin's fear of practical, proselytizing, secular idealism. This seems a reflection of the very act that disappointed him, the revolutionaries stepping back from power in the moment they have won it. Amin is an admirer of the universalist pre-1967 NASA, who built what he calls a strong state, that relatively egalitarian, relatively honest state, that redistributed income, and not only built universal health and education networks, but began a mass housing program. This is the state he would have liked the revolution to restore, also presumably without the torture and repression that went along with it. Another writer about the Egyptian revolution, the journalist Jack Schenker, in his book The Egyptians, takes a different view of what the revolution should bring about. He writes... Egyptian revolutionaries' own visions of change have not 
for the most part, involved the capturing or replications of state power. In common with many radical social movements around the world in recent years, from the Occupy movement to mass mobilizations in Turkey, Chile, and Brazil, the revolution's targets have been more diffuse and its organization more horizontal. Rather than working off ideological blueprints, revolutionaries have attempted to make space for the autonomy of many different individuals and communities as part of their struggle. He goes on, I tend to disagree with people who say this revolution doesn't have a direction or a compass. It has one, but it's a new one. It's a revolution on the form of the revolution itself. Not so much leaderless as leaderful. Schenker and Amin have very different views of the revolution and Egypt's future, but they agree on Egypt's problem. A brutally enforced hold on power and the economy by a corrupt oligarchic and arrogant minority, many of them senior officers from the army, supported by big foreign investors and by an international system of multinational corporations and neoliberal financial institutions that is content to see the people of developing countries experience repression and underfunded universal networks indefinitely in exchange for a low corporate tax burden and the free flow of capital across borders. Post-revolutionary Ukraine is in a less dire situation, but faces similar problems, as do many other countries. It may be possible for revolutions to reform the corrupt, low-tax states without secular idealists adopting some of the metaphysical, cultural mindset of the religious and of nationalists. But it's hard to see how. It may be possible for secular revolutionary idealists to transform a state without entering it, without even touching the state's institutions. But again, it's hard to see how. Societies always change at all levels, and defining the revolutionary's opponents has to take this into account. Those of us who think of ourselves as progressive have become comfortable with expressions like neoliberal and global capitalism, so comfortable that we risk missing signs of a quiet revolution among the world's rich and powerful. The prevailing attitude among, say, the roving executives of a big multinational bank is not to oppose universality explicitly, but to assume, or pretend to assume, that the public goods of late 20th century North America, Europe, and Japan, universal networks like education, will come about of their own accord, that national governments and the market will somehow take care of them. They will actively lobby for low taxes and privatization. They won't actually lobby against every child having a place in a decent school, even if their lobbying indirectly hampers that. But there are signs that the sort of neoliberalism and global, global capitalism we have become used to is being quietly overthrown by a more archaic form of capitalism, that the relatively dynamic shareholder-owned multinationals who nestle within the relatively democratic societies of the rich world are having to deal with a wave of neo-aristocratic privilege around the world, where the fusion of inherited money and inherited power is reasserting itself. This was quite explicit in Egypt, where one of the great causes of popular anger was the evident intention of President Hosni Mubarak to pass on power to his son Gamal, as if the Mubaraks were a royal family. In pre-revolutionary Ukraine, President Yanukovych's son Alexander went in a short time from being a dentist, a humble dentist, 
to becoming one of the most powerful businessmen in the country, thanks to his skill in winning state contracts. In China, the children and in-laws of senior communist officials form a neo-aristocratic class, as do the children and in-laws of Vladimir Putin's Secret Service cronies in Russia. In the United States, Donald Trump has brought his family into his government and stuffed his cabinet with people who, like himself, are not just fantastically wealthy, they are the fantastically wealthy children of fantastically wealthy parents. Healthcare in the United States has never been a universal network, even after the introduction of Obamacare. It is an exclusive network. Yet the attempts by Trump and his cabinet of neo-aristocrats to make it more exclusive still, mark a new level of openness in the revolt against universality by super-rich families. There is no pretense and no gloss on the attempt to worsen health coverage for sick, non-rich children in order to increase the vast personal wealth of America's neo-aristocrats. Trump tends to be measured in how far he falls short of presidential. But is it appropriate to apply the measure to a man whose outlook is not presidential, but monarchic? As the revolutionaries of the world ponder how to hobble exploitative global capitalism, global capitalism faces an insurrection from within. The revolutionary President King Donald Trump is there at the dinner table, his own personal private dinner table at his own personal private country club in Florida, in his moment of victory, telling the president of China how he has just launched his cruise missiles at Syria. Thank you. That is the end. Thank you very much. Um, we've got a, a, good, a good chunk of time for questions and for points and discussions, so... I'll just see if uh, anybody would like to start us off. Um, I'll wait for the microphone and just say who you are and where you're from so we can... Hello, uh, my name is Trent I'm, uh, and I'm an alumni of the London School of Economics. <laughs> I wonder I am. if you could speak about uh, the founders of the London School of Economics who were um, probably first and foremost eugenicists. Sorry, um... The founders of the LSC who were eugenicists. Wave your hand, around. Ah, yes, 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 yes. Hi, hi. They were eugenicists, yes, yes. Um, they, they had, I mean, the, you can say a lot of things about the, uh, about the, uh, the Fabians uh, and the Webbs, um, and the, the salient points about them seems to be that they were um, eugenicists, that they were um, extremely naive about the, uh, the real nature of life in the Soviet Union, um, and that they supported a vast outbook, output of um, campaigning in favor of uh, a more egalitarian society. Um, now, um, the question is, does the eugenicism, does it contaminate the, uh, the campaigning for uh, an egalitarian society? Well, you might say it's obvious that it does, because they, you know, this egalitarian society, they wanted to sterilize part of it. Um, it's, um, it's, it's a difficult one. And, and to be absolutely honest with you, I do not know enough about the balance of, of argument and action uh, and deeds by the members of the, of the Fabians in that respect. Um, and and uh, if you would like to explain to me 
uh, which looks like you're ready to do. At, at <laughs> least not at two rate. Yeah. No, I won't. I won't. <laughs> no, because I mean, it is, it is a, a very interesting point, and I, I, a, I did kind of anticipate a, this question. I mean, I think it, it, it fundamentally permeates the London School of Economics to this very minute. If you go to the top floor here uh, in the Shaw Library named after George Bernard Shaw, you'll find a stained glass window with the founders of the London School of Economics standing at, over a round earth that's been heated up by the industrial process, standing over it with hammers, with the motto at the top saying, remold it to your heart's desire. And in the middle is their logo of the Fabian Society, which is a wolf in sheep's clothing. <coughs> Below that is the founders of the London School of Economics worshipping their own books, one of which is uh, New World for Old. So, and to qualify how much they were involved with the London School of Economics, the first five directors were directly involved either as directors of the, young, of the uh, British Eugenics Society or as, um, you know, board members, etc. If you look up George Bernard Shaw tonight's eugenics in YouTube, you will see him on video, well, it was on film, but it's been put on video, saying we need to find a humane way to gas people. And that's a fact. This is the fundamental foundation of the London School of Economics, and everybody needs to know, and everybody needs to get up to speed with it ASAP. Yeah, well, I, uh, I, I, great. I mean, I, 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 I'm glad that you brought that up, um, and I hope you continue to bring it up and uh, writing about it and talking about it. Um, it still remains a question um, as to whether that contaminates the idea of social justice. Um, Okay, uh, I mean, I don't think just, we should I'll have another... I'll just respond on that, and then I'll... Um, social justice actually is the same idea as natural justice, which is that there are those... This sounds like a political philosophy seminar starting. <laughs> just maybe we could talk about it afterwards, if you like, rather than, you know, it may be that some other people <laughs> would like to... we're not at a university anymore. No, but I, I would be glad to talk to you about this afterwards, but... but not just uh, to finish this point on okay. social justice, social justice actually means natural justice. It means to get rid of these people, which is the majority, so these people can progress... That is the f true definition of social justice. I think now you're, you're moving to the world of semantics, but uh, we can talk about that afterwards. Okay. Um, can I just see? Um, so we've got uh, this woman over here, and then this just... Let's, I'll take first this woman here, and then I'll take you. But and if, would, who you are and where you're from, please, too. Uh, I would just say I was firstly uh, quite shocked at the, the, the way you responded to... Um, Johnny Ma, was it? <laughs> I can't remember me, Jonathan, Jonathan, somebody took point. And how uh, casual you talked about the, the gassing people, if that's like, is, is, did I hear that? And I did hear that right? Yeah? Yeah. <coughs> yeah. I, I, I agree that there's too, I feel that there's too many people on the planet as well. But, or, or maybe it's just not distributed like prop. Like, I, don't, I just don't think that like, there's a lot of space that's not used and there's a lot of... Um, and all those things could be done over a period of time and, and providing condoms and stuff and that, for example, like that, so that people aren't like... So, so, ha having so, so many children and stuff and that, like, and so that there, there's other ways of slowing down, uh, making the world um, less populated without having to do it overnight... Right, but um, I'm, I'm not arguing in favour of eugenics or gassing people. <laughs> is, is that what you're thinking? I, d I don't know. You were saying... I, I, I'm absolutely clear about this. I, I am not... 
I, I didn't come I, here I to talk I about know. eugenics. I, I'm not uh, in favor of it. I, I, it's, okay. We're talking about it's sort of several places removed from, um, from what? Okay, I think I'm a bit confused. I, I, I'm so sorry. I, I, I was really tired and I, I yeah, sorry. I'm going Okay, um, this, can we have this gentleman here, please? Very much. It's a very interesting talk, and I've learned a lot. What I do think is, um, Russia is no longer Marxist, but um, I think that uh, the great achievement of the Soviet Union was that without the Marxist regime, it might have been difficult to defeat Hitler when Hitler attacked the Soviet Union with a fascist coalition. And I think Stalin's role was essential. Those American people were, I mean, were unity on fighting fascism. And I think the Chinese also were the allies. The land powers of the victim bars. There was a fascist period in Japan. And in the war, I think their land powers lost much more than they won eventually with the Western allies and the fascist aggressors, Nazi Germany, imperial Japan. Do you think how role essential the Marxist regime was to winning the war against fascism? <sighs> Well, it's, it's a, that's, a, that's a terribly difficult question. Uh, it's one I've often thought about um, because um, it's one of those areas where you come up against um, this sort of horrible uh, moral impossibility um, that um, would it have been possible to win, to beat the Nazis without Stalin. This is basically what you're saying. Because it's not really about Marxism. It's about a different kind of... Um, a kind of rule, that the rule of Stalin, which, which already had moved a long way from, from communism as it was, as it was originally conceived. Um, I mean, I've been a couple of times to a place in Russia called Norilsk, um, which uh, was built by slave labor. And I talked there to, the, um, to the, uh, some of the women who had been... Um, who had been basically kidnapped from Ukraine um, in the 1940s by the Soviets uh, and, and made a slave away to build this nickel factory. Um, and it was just one of many slave labor operations that the, the Soviets used under Stalin to build factories east of the Urals um, before the war and during the war. Um, and those factories were then the factories that they used to, uh, together with the ones that had been evacuated to um, to build the tanks and guns that, that defeated the Nazis, um, and um, so I, I, you know, I would like to think that um, we could have done without Stalin, that we could have done without Lenin, that um, it had been the 1905 revolution that succeeded, um, and that um, Russia became a, a sort of um, uh, a peaceful social democratic state, but still had somehow the resources to to beat Hitler when it came. Um, but I don't know. I don't know. Um, maybe um, Hitler would have would have fallen on on us all uh, like a wolf and and uh, destroyed everyone. It's it's just one of these imponderables of history. But it's a horrible thought um, to to think that um, that that Hitler could not have been beaten without the use of slave labour. Okay, um, this woman here, please. Yeah, thank you. I have a question. You referred to the Ukrainian um, revolution and past tense mostly because it started in 19, uh, 2014 while the Ukrainian war still continues un up until today, mostly forgotten by the public media. 
And um, so I wonder, what do you think, what kind of role, responsibility, and also agency journalists have in the aftermath of a revolution? And also, um, to which extent do you think revolutions become permanent and therefore turn into war? And how... Revolutions become permanent and... I didn't uh, hear the last part of that. Uh, and, yeah, continue to be uh, continuous conflict as it is now in, in the Ukraine. Um, well, there's quite yeah, a lot of questions. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I mean, on the, yeah, on the question of... Yeah, also, like, the, the media coverage, because it's kind of mostly forgotten. Yeah, I mean, it's... Uh, it, it, are, you, are you from Ukraine it? yourself? Uh, no, but, yeah, yeah. I have a friend. You take an interest. Uh, yeah, well, I take an interest, too. I, I lived there for some years, and, um, and I... Um, I'm disheartened uh, and have been since the very beginning uh, by the, the lack of interest in, um, in Ukraine's side of the story. Um, and, and when I say that, I don't mean just what the Ukrainian government thinks is the truth. I, I mean just going to Ukraine and talking to people there about what's happening. Um, and um, I mean, what, what I learned when I was a foreign correspondent, one of the sort of sad truths is that um, the newspapers are, they, they're trying to guess what their readers are interested in. Uh, and people in one country do tend to understand the uh, events in another country, not through the prism of, of news, but through the prism of, um, of uh, things that they already know. Uh, and people don't really have a set of, of sort of stereotypes and cliches with which to understand Ukraine. I mean, it's it's sad to say that, that people often do use stereotypes and cliches as a starting point for understanding something new, but that, that, is, that does seem to be the truth. Um, and so um, there just isn't much in the way of kind of history and legend and, and relationships between Ukraine and the rest of the world for people to kind of get a grip on. Um, and uh, I'm, it sounds like I'm defending journalistic lack of interest there, but I'm, I'm just um, saying that, um, that that's... That's a possible reason for it. Uh, it's, it's very unfortunate. And, and I think what has to be said is that it's, um, it's down to the Ukrainians in a way to try and encourage more people to go there, um, whether as, as tourists or, um, or to study um, or uh, to do business um, or, or just to find out what's going on and sort of build up those, those links um, with the rest of the world that make people more interested in what's happening there, whatever is happening there. As for the permanent revolution, well, that's, that's such a huge question because it then gets into the question of what is a revolution? Um, you can have a society which is tremendously peaceful but um, is actually undergoing a huge ferment of, of change. Um, or you can have a society which is in a state of perpetual war but it doesn't necessarily mean that it's, it's revolutionary. It could just be a kind of a very bloody form of stagnation. So that's, that's a bit of a trickier one. I'm not going to try to tackle now okay yes this gentleman here please just wait and say who you are thank you um paul mcgrail catholic workers group <clears throat> i was wondering if you if, if you believe that there's shall we say an optimal size for a, a, the nation state and whether or not a country the size of the the, the the soviet union was would invariably have broken up just because of the the, the difficulty of governing from a, uh, from a, a central area, um, and whether that would apply, say, to China or to India with their, the size of the population. And even, although it's, it's difficult to conceive of, the United States, which now has a population of 320 million, and I'm told there is, uh, the, the, it's, 
the fractions and the divisions are greater than ever before. Um, and that perhaps um, it's just, whether it be ethno, um, social, or religious, or class and economic, that these um, divisions within society invariably lead to um, a revolution, either soft or hard. Uh, the, yeah, that, that's too vast a geopolitical um, canvas uh, for me to try and dab my little paintbrush on, I think. Um, I mean, just sort of trying to make some link to the things I've been talking about, um, I, I suppose I'm, I'm more interested in um, revolution which is related to uh, structural change uh, it's not confined to national borders. Um, I, I'm more interested in, and I, I think it's, it's actually more significant, the, the transnational movements um, that happen either consciously or unconsciously, um, whatever the, uh, the particular kind of geopolitical unit that you're, you're dealing with is. Um, so, um, you know, look at this country, for example. We, of, of all the countries you mentioned, we're the ones uh, that um, are facing the imminent prospect of breakup. Um, and um, I think, uh, and indeed Britain is, is leaving Europe, of course, um, but I think ultimately in the big picture, uh, and, and for individuals, um, those changes, um, although they might lead to local short-term um, disruptions, they're less fundamental than... Uh, than movements and, and campaigns and social transformations which take place um, across borders. I mean, whenever you try and do a sort of a survey like the one that I was doing here, like looking at more than one country at different times, different, um, different places, um, it is, I find it always striking how um, these ideas do move from one country to another and how uh, you have similar processes taking place in countries um, that aren't necessarily next door to each other and don't seem to obviously have a, a direct connection. Uh, so I think that is the more... Um, you know, obviously, you're talking about a big country like China or, or Russia or, um, or India. Um, there's the potential for extreme um, strife if there was a breakup. Um, but um, apart from that, um, I, I, I think it's the... It's, it's the broader history of ideas and how that impacts on individuals and how individuals kind of carry those ideas through uh, across borders and through time that is the more fundamental uh, signifier of what is actually occurring in history. Okay. Um, so, yes, this person here. Hi. Um, so I'm really interested in this idea that you were saying right at the end about the fact that we seem to be going through a much more quiet revolution where, you know, kind of people in power are not necessarily saying no to things, but they're just saying it will happen anyway. Um, and I'd just be interested to know, are there any kind of precedents in history for those types of revolutions being opposed? And, you know, does that ever work? Uh, well, just to clarify what I was actually talking about, I was, um, I was talking about the way that... Um, revolutionaries in the modern world um, tend to um, to talk about their sort of their, their target their problem being this uh, this great kind of neoliberal consensus um, and what I was saying was that um, 
that there is possibly, possibly um, a, a, a split now, a kind of revolution within this kind of the, the, the world of the, of the rich and powerful between these neo-aristocrats um, who are actively returning to the ideals of uh, the, the pre-19th century era um, uh, and, uh, and, and between the neoliberals who were prepared to just kind of go along with um, whatever any country does as long as they don't have to pay any taxes. Um, so that was, what, that was what I was saying. And in terms of, um, in terms of historical precedent, I'm not a historian. Um, I, uh, no, no example springs to mind, but I, I, was, I was quoting Theda Skokpol earlier on, her, um, her ideas about how classical revolutions begin when there is a rift within the ruling class between the, the representatives of the state uh, and the, uh, the wealthy landowners, essentially. Um, and that that conflict weakens both parties uh, and the, this allows the, the people below to uh, an opening to, to change society. Um, so I suppose in, in her terms, um, that's been a regular occurrence. Um, are we now seeing um, a, uh, a recurrence of that? I mean, these are such sort of vast um, spheres uh, that it, it's, it's very tempting and very dangerous to, to generalize. Um, but I think from what I've read and heard about Donald Trump's mindset, um, he, he doesn't seem to think of... Um, you know, if, if he's, if, what you and I might think, if we see um, uh, a, um, a politician like I know Mitt Romney giving a speech to Goldman Sachs, then you would think, oh, yes, there's a bunch of um, neoliberal capitalists. Um, but from the point of view of Donald Trump, he sees um, interfering um, big government uh, tax-taking uh, rentiers. Um, so um, uh, it's. Uh, I, I think there is. I think there is something happening, uh, and it's, it's also in the way that these links are being forged between these these neo aristocrats. Um, the way that uh, that I, I, I don't think it's it's just a a political thing. The the relationship between, for example, Putin and, and Trump. I think um, there's this. Uh, a sense of, you know, we, we are bosses, we are kings, we, we embody the state. Um, it's, it's, it's almost as if there's an echo of, of the divine rule of, of, of kings. That's, that's a very, very faint echo, but you can, you can see the beginnings of a, a kind of reform of the aristocr- aristocracy that we thought, uh, and especially America thought they got rid of a long time ago, and indeed Russia. Okay, yes, this person here. Um, how much are we seeing a kind of, um, uh, in, in terms of Blair's revolution, Tony Blair's revolution um, that he tried to impose? Um, it, it, did he? Um, is there a difference between um, monetary revolution and social revolution? And is that why Blair's revolution didn't work out? Is because he tried to um, create a kind of uh, a, a monetary currency without uh, creating a, a social currency uh, to, to go with it and alongside it and to fit in with it? Yeah, um, t- 
Tony Blair, did he have a revolution? <laughs> um, I mean, in a way, he was sort of trying to, trying to avoid that, wasn't he? Uh, sometimes, when I've been um, writing these, um, these articles where um, privatization and marketization of, of, um, of the, the networks I've been talking about, when, I, when I've been writing about this, I, every now and again, I think, yeah, I see what he was trying to do. I see what Blair, I see the problems he was up against, I see what he was trying to do. You know, he was basically, he was trying to um, uh, avoid the, um, the problems that you have um, within a society that has a high level of universal networks um, in terms of uh, resistance to change, in terms of... Um, capture of a network by the people who work for it. Um, all these things that I would probably be writing a lecture about now if we still lived in, in 1978, um, because they are, they are extremely problematic. And I, 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 I do have some concerns that um, also I'm supporting uh, Corbyn, um, that he hasn't really thought through some of the original problems that, um, that were... Um, the, uh, part of the cause of, of Thatcher coming to power. So, yeah, I can see what Blair was trying to do, but I can also see the mistakes he made um, and, um, fundamental, and, and the, the mistakes that keep getting made uh, everywhere you look, um, that uh, his people trust, to, are so trusting of these nice, charming, elegantly dressed businessmen who come along and say, oh, yeah, we'll sort it out, it'll be fine. Uh, yeah, it'll be, it'll be really just and fair, and, and um, just, just leave it to us. We'll design a beautiful system. You have to pay a penny. Um, and, you know, it's, it's not enough to, um, to uh, say, for example, oh, um, we'll, um, we'll hand the council estates over to housing associations. Housing associations, they're non-profit-making. Um, it's not enough to do that. You've got to assume the worst. You've got to put triple, quadruple, quintuple locks on these to make sure that that structure is never going to be undermined, is never going to change. And, and that wasn't done with housing associations. That wasn't done with um, foundation trusts. Uh, it wasn't done with, um, uh, with academies and free schools. Uh, and um, really, as, as I have said on previous occasions, uh, if the Conservatives dismantled these networks, then it was Labour that loosened the screws. Well, I think it's probably time to um, draw proceedings to a close. Um, I was reading in preparation for this lecture um, some of the reviews of James Meek's work, and, and I came across a review by John Gray, who used to teach here at the LSC, about one of his books. And, and Gray wrote, Meek couldn't produce a dull sentence however hard he tried. And I think tonight we've got some good evidence that John Gray was right about that. Um, our speaker's woven a, a, a rich tapestry, really, covering an incredible range of empirical references, rooted in a kind of understanding of core scholarly texts and bringing to bear on it all a certain sort of moral sensibility about the paradox that is involved in revolutionary action. And he's left us, at least I think, at the end, thinking about two very different types of futures that might emerge. One which he chooses to call universality, something which is clearly up for grabs in the election that we're now in the middle of in this country, and another far bleaker future 
in which it's not just a question of moving from social democracy to neo-capitalism, but indeed to a kind of neo-aristocracy. So with those two thoughts in mind, I'd like to ask you to thank our speaker, James Meek.